Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream And you can holler Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it, it is almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today is Monday. August the 17th, 2009. This is episode 257, I think, of the Survival Podcast. You have to forgive me, folks. It's been a long weekend. I'll tell you why when we get to the housekeeping. Um, But whatever episode it is, you are uh, listening to it so you know. And uh, once again, we are coming to you from my personal mobile studio on my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. But my personal mobile studio is a uh, not the Jetta Diesel TDI today. It is a uh, Chevy Cobalt. Got some bad fuel in the Jetta Diesel on Friday. I ended up stranded. It had to be left at a repair shop. And uh, so if you hear any additional background noise, that is why. Um, Let's go right into uh, today's intro segment. You know how the show goes. We have our Ask Clowns and Heroes segment. Heroes until we come up with a better word. And uh, then we do our housekeeping, and then we go to our main body of the show. Today's main topic is we're going to do a questions and answers show, which has become sort of a Monday tradition. Uh, gives a week for the uh, questions to uh, to pile up, and then uh, gives me a day to answer them and an easy start to my week. Because honestly, the uh, the listener questions are a little bit easier than uh, than just picking a subject that I have to do thirty to forty minutes of content on. So uh, that's what we're going to do today. Well, let's start out with our ask clown of the day. Uh, This came from a listener. Actually, two or three listeners sent me a link to this. The Ask Clown of the Day is a lady named Roxana Mayer. Roxana Mayer. Who is Roxana Mayer? Well, if you watched a little bit of a town hall meeting with a congresswoman named Sheila Jackson Lee, and that lady's an ass clown every day. I was going to make her honorable mention because I think she's in on this, but uh, not really worth it. There's nothing she could do to be a bigger ass clown than she is. Um, But Roxana Mayer... If you watch the town hall meeting, you would be convinced she was a general practitioner doctor uh, that's been practicing medicine for four years, and she supports Obamacare and generally supports the public option because the United States, while we are the best in the world at treating ailments and injuries and diseases, we are terrible at preventive medicine, and we need to increase that, and the public option is the way to do that. Now, why would you believe that? Because that's what she said. That's who she said she was. That's what she said she believed. And uh, Sheila Jackson Lee came out and said, let's give her a hug. Let's give her a hug because she's a doctor. Um, So the congressman gave her a hug and they put it in the newspaper. And here's a doctor supporting Obamacare. And everybody says the doctors don't support it, but here's one. Here's the problem. She's not a doctor. She's never been to medical school. She's not even a nurse. She's not qualified to put a Band-Aid on a kid's knee. It was a lie. It was what we call astroturfing. It's what the opposition to this crap is being accused of. And here it is blatantly. And I don't know for a fact, but I thought it was against the law to claim to be a doctor, especially a medical doctor, offering any opinion uh, that would influence anybody in any way. 
Maybe somebody needs to look at filing charges against this piece of crap. Um, now, here's what makes it worse. She's actually part of Organizing for America, which is the big, you know, Obama, you know, Obama support group. It comes right out of BarackObama.com, and they have proof of it because they have her as uh, making a big post uh, on the OFA blog during the campaign. So, she is a delegate for Barack Obama, part of Organizing for America, goes to a town hall meeting, stands up, claims to be a physician that's been practicing for four years. She's not a doctor. She lied. Ask Clown of the Day. And I do think that someone should look into whether or not that is a criminally prosecutable offense to claim to be a medical doctor. I believe it is. Maybe I'm wrong. Let's talk about something positive then. Here's our hero of the day. Charles Gust. Charles Gus Augusto. Gus Augusto. I guess this Gus is a nickname for Augusto. 72-year-old gentleman. Runs a restaurant supply warehouse in Harlem, New York. Four gunmen, four gunmen, each carrying a handgun, broke into his facility, pistol-whipped one of his employees, started beating on another and demanding money. Gus said, I don't have any money here. Go home. They didn't go home. They continued to beat his employee. The guy thought they were about to start shooting because they weren't getting what they wanted. And old Gus pulls out an old pup 12-gauge shotgun. Boom! Boom, boom. That's three shots. Four people injured. Two dead. Two, the cops followed a blood trail and uh, found the other two. One's in critical care. One is unfortunately okay. And uh, Mr. Augusto defended his property, his business, and his people. And he did it with a firearm following the Second Amendment. He's fired the gun once before to test fire when he bought it years and years ago. This guy's not a gun nut. He didn't want to do this. He said, I wish they would have just went home. But I had to protect myself and I had to protect the people that work for me. Good for you, sir. Hero of the day. Honorary, um, uh, what do you call it, runner-up to Ask Clown of the Day is the people, and I'll give you the link to the article. There's a lady in the article that said, it's a shame that those kids are dead. You know what? Those kids were trying to shoot people, lady. You know what? Those kids broke into a place, waved guns in a guy's face, started beating a man. Probably would have beat him to death if this man didn't do what he did. All right? There's no tragedy here. This man's a hero. This is what should happen to every piece of vomit that breaks into somebody's place of business and starts abusing people. This should be the result. And if this was always the result, you would see our crime rates plummet. Um, the man was asked if his gun was confiscated. He said, I'm not going to tell you that. Or if he had a backup, he said, I'm not going to tell you that, coyly and wirely. Well, if the police uh, confiscated this man's gun, if they did, they should go to jail for taking a gun away from a law-abiding citizen who used it illegally. They already said they're not filing any charges. I don't think they did. Who knows? Um, maybe since he wouldn't answer, they did. He has to go buy a new gun. I, I don't really know. All I know is if you break in Gus's uh, place, you might be eating some buckshot. Maybe you should think about it. You know, we just had James Jaeger on the show, and this proves a point. Shotguns are fight stoppers. Four armed individuals, young men with handguns. One old man with a pump 12-gauge. Three shots, four down, two dead. 
Hero of the day. Good job, sir. All right, now, um, let's get into the housekeeping real quick. Always, as I say, please support our advertisers. They do a lot to support the show, keep it going, keep me able to do this every day, and helping me get to a point where this can become my main line of work, meaning I'll be able to do better, longer, and more well-researched shows for you and start adding new features. We'll tell you a little bit about features that are being added uh, real soon here. Um, but our advertiser of the day, Safe Castle Royal. Um, Absolutely outstanding uh, materials for all of your preparedness needs. Uh, an unbelievable assortment of what's available to the preparedness industry. And remember, for $19, you get a discount membership that will uh, give you significant discounts on everything they offer. And that discount membership lasts a lifetime. If you join the Member Support Brigade, more on that in a second, you get that membership for free. Uh, next is uh, Directive21.com, who offers Berkey Light water filters. Folks, water is absolutely essential. You need it. Without it, you die. That's how cut and dry, point blank this is. No water, dead, the end. You only get several days without that. I get tons of questions. How much water should I store? As much as you can and it will never be enough. So make sure you have a way to purify water in the future should we end up in a long term shit hit the fan. Uh, next, call out once again to join our forum. We just had forum member 3,000 join. Um, that was uh, a couple days ago and that person gets a free one year membership to the uh, member support for and you never know what milestone we're going to do that with. So join the forum, get involved, make a post, and uh, introduce yourself. Last but not least, consider, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you join the Member Support Brigade, you get exclusive content available only to members, along with that $19 value uh, lifetime membership to Safe Castle Royals Discount Club. You'll also get a series of e-publications by James Talman Stevens. Total retail value of everything that's there for free right now, $63. Uh, you'll also get some videos that are available only to members of the MSB that I've made and made available. And uh, you'll be supporting the show for about $0.20 cents an episode if you do $50 a year, or about a quarter an episode if you do it at $5 a month. All right. I want to tell you just a little bit more about some stuff today with housekeeping before I go on to the main topic of the show, and it has to do with what to expect next week. Uh, next week, I will be at the long-awaited Dirt Time 09, which is a huge uh, get-together put on by Wilderness Way magazine. I will be presenting on survival gardening. Uh, there will be 14 other survival experts there from the industry of various uh, different subjects and topics, and uh, it's going to be a really great event, and the attendance is estimated at 150 individuals right now. So while I'm gone, obviously I can't be podcasting, but I wanted to put some shows up for next week so that you guys didn't go a full week without a show. I've already got two. One was an interview with Trioxin, uh, also known as Matt Hundley, uh, from our forum and one of our moderators. It was an outstanding interview. It'll air Tuesday of next week. The other is, uh, or actually Monday of next week, the other is a show that I did just on the core philosophies and principles. I did that Friday afternoon on the way home. So I was doing shows this weekend, editing, getting them up and ready to go. So they're already preset. Monday and Tuesday, they will automatically publish themselves. So there will be two shows next week at minimum. Right now, I'm working on getting uh, Eric Sheldon, who is the host of the Handgun Podcast, on for an interview uh, this week, which will air next week as well. And it looks like I might get James Talmadge Stevens on as well. So there looks like there might be two more interviews set up there. If you guys get fast with your questions this week... Your, your email questions, you email me and say, hey, can you answer these? If I can get enough questions to do a show by, let's say, Wednesday afternoon, that will give me five shows, and you won't miss a single.
single day with a show during the week that I'm gone. That's my goal. So I wanted to let you know that. And I wanted to let you know about some of the guests that are coming up. I found a great solution for bringing guests on. I use Skype and a little program called Skype Recorder, which seems to be working very well. I was told by some people who got a sneak peek at the Trioxin interview. It sounds like the radio. Hey, that's about as good as I can do. It's got to be better than a car. All right, so let's get on with the questions today. we got some really good ones. First one's pretty easy. Guy writes in, he says, hey, look, um, I've been starting to, like, store the things beyond just some food and water and, and, and regular needs and starting to think about long-term survival, um, providing for myself, living off the land, things like that. And uh, one of the things I've thought about storing is equipment for fishing. Well, if you're going to fish, you need good quality monofilament line or some other type of line. Can you store that stuff for a long time without it breaking down? Easy question to answer, absolutely yes. In fact, it's one of the reasons I want to throw out a little environmental thing today. If you're ever fishing and you strip a bunch of line off your reel, throw it away. Tie it up, put it in a garbage can, stick it into a paper sack, throw that in the garbage. Do whatever you can. Do not leave fishing line laying out on shore. Sooner or later, it does start to weaken, but it lasts an awful long time. And uh, birds and other animals get caught up in it like a net, and it kills them. It cuts it cuts into their bodies. It is a terrible way to die. And that's because it does last a long time and it doesn't break down easily. Now what will break down monofilament eventually is moisture, being wet then dry, wet then dry, wet then dry and being exposed to the sun. And everybody's had a fishing rod that's been used for a while where you just look at the line, you, you kind of feel it and go, okay, it's time for this to be replaced. Um, so if you store your fishing line in a dark place and, and it doesn't get wet often, you, it'll probably last longer than you will. So no problem storing your fishing line. On the other hand, those of you who are fishermen, please don't leave that crap out in the woods. If you can care, you know, I, I got to tell you, I grew up in kind of a very strange location in Pennsylvania um, where as, teen- as a teenager, I drank beer. And just about every teenager drank beer. And we had these old bush parties. And I had an, an ecology teacher um, who, instead of telling us not to drink, knew that it was not worth it. And what she said is, if you can carry the, if you can carry the full cans of beer in, you can carry the empty ones out. Please don't litter. I, I know that's not a good message for kids. I know it's not. But when you're 15, you think that teacher's pretty cool. And if you knew where I grew up and you understood the culture, it was going to be that way anyway. Well, that's how I feel about your fishing line. If you can carry it in, you can carry it out. Uh, please don't leave that stuff lying around. But store it any way you want to as long as it's not wet or exposed to solar or UV radiation. Another guy wrote in as a follow-up to the uh, James Yeager interview that I did and said, Hey, um, I noticed when you asked James about the 40, he wasn't real fond of the 40 and basically said either carry a 9mm or a, um, a 45. I he said basically he understood why he would say something like, don't bother with a 357 SIG, it's kind of an oddball or whatever. But what's wrong with the 40 Smith & Wesson? Well, folks, when you have a guest on your show, you don't argue every point. You, you let him express his opinion. Uh, my opinion is there's nothing wrong with the 40 Smith & Wesson as a home defense or a personal defense uh, round. I think it is one of the best out there. I think it's why more law enforcement organizations use it than the 9mm. I think it's ballistically superior to the 9mm. I think it's more lethal than the 9mm. And I still think it's not an ideal thing to have. They, you know, when, when James said that you're better off with a shotgun or a rifle for home defense, I agree. They're a better fight stopper. But for a carry round, there's nothing wrong with the 40. I'll give you a little history of where the 40 came from. Uh, back in the, uh, in the in the 80s, the 
FBI was looking for something that would be a better round uh, than either the 38 Special or the 9mm, both which were seen to be lacking in the field with stopping power. Uh, this ended up creating what is known as the 10mm, which is kind of obscure now and only a few different makers even make guns for it, uh, but is a very effective um, 40 caliber round. 10mm and 40 caliber are the same. And the problem with it, because the case was a little bit longer, it didn't fit into a 9mm sized frame. So we had a bunch of limp-wristed FBI guys that couldn't handle shooting a, a man-sized gun, in my opinion. They couldn't handle the recoil and the frame size of the 10mm. So people looked at it and went, well, 357 it docked down to a 38 Special. That works there. and like A little bit less powerful, um, but retains a lot of the, and especially at you know, reduced law enforcement loads anyway, um, probably the way to go. So they cut the case down a little bit to uh, you know prevent a uh, 10 millimeter from being chambered in a 40 and um, reduce the power. And hence we have the 40 Smith & Wesson, which fits in a smaller framed auto, uh, has a lower recoil and a little bit less velocity and muzzle energy. That's where the 40 came from. It is today used, I believe, and I could be wrong, but I think it's used by more police departments uh, than any other round out there, that the standard issue duty carry that every cop that I personally know is carrying uh, right now is generally a Glock in a 40 Smith & Wesson. The ammunition is affordable and available, uh, as available as 9mm in the United States. Now, James says 9mm because he travels internationally. And if you travel internationally, there's something to be said for that. But in the United States, I haven't ever been in a place where I can get 9mm and not get 40 Smith. In fact, while the ammo was really short, that's starting to correct itself a little bit now, um, I often found 40 when I couldn't find 9. So there's nothing wrong with a 40. Uh, universally available ammunition, if that's your priority and you travel outside of the country, the Mr. Uh, Jaeger is absolutely correct with the 9mm. The reality, though, is both are proven rounds, and it's part of what I said in the uh, in the show when I was talking about comparing it to the 45. There's a big difference between shooting uh, a, a bad guy with ball ammo, not expanding ball ammo, and a good expanding round. So the ammunition choice is, is just about as important as the caliber once we get up into the proven calibers. So hopefully that answers your question. And hopefully I didn't step on James's toes too bad there. Um, next question is kind of an interesting one. Um, the guy says he started to really start to build out his pantry. And based on some of my recommendations, has looked to pasta, beans, and rice as low-cost, long-term storage items. But he's looking at some of the uh, expiration dates in the store and seeing six months on a lot of them, basically. Even when he watches and makes sure it's new items that have just come in, you still see six months to a year maximum. And do, you, do I think that most of these things, bean, rice, and pasta in particular, can go out past two years? And are they lying to us just to get us to buy and rotate stock more frequently? Well, um, I think, one, they do last longer, and two, they're not lying to us. It's, it's not that at all. Uh, let's take the lying to us part first. I think what they're doing is they're covering their ass in case somebody um, gets sick. And by having no, if they had an expiration date that was uh, 2011, 
and uh, you got sick and you claimed it was their beans or their pasta or their rice, um, you'd have a case, right? So even if they're not worried about it going bad, it's just if you go mathematically and I want to reduce my potential lawsuits, the shorter my expiration date is, right, then the less likely I am to be in a credible lawsuit in any way, shape, or form, even if it's not my fault. Just because I've reduced the time that the item's out there and legal action is possible against me, if that makes sense. But I think that's the big thing is just litigation is what they're afraid of. Number two, and God, you got to understand, I, I don't like big food or anything, guys, and a lot of this stuff comes from the big food producers, but... Um, I'll tell you as a business person, will I get sued for this? Will I weaken my legal case? Am I more likely to be sued if I do this? Those are questions every business person has unfortunately have got to ask themselves every day in today's day and age where people sue over everything and win in ridiculous situations. And where defending yourself, even when you're right, can cost you so much money, you might be better off settling. So that's why they do that. Now, the other side of that is you also have to understand that once the manufacturer produces the food, puts it in a package, and sends it out the door, they lose control of it. Now, is it going to a great big beautiful Tom Thumb where it will immediately be put on the shelf, immediately be taken care, taken home by a homeowner who has a nice air-conditioned home who will put it in a nice storage container in a nice dark-sealed closet? Is that going to happen to it? Is it going to be purchased by a prepper survivalist who's going to take it home, pack it together with a bunch of other things, throw it in a five-gallon bucket, put an O2 absorber in it, put a lid on it, seal it in the back of a dark closet? Or is it going to go to Jerry's Groceries, and who's he? I don't know. Some little mom-and-pop grocery store that's a very slow turnover that doesn't practice just-in-time inventory, that has a great big attic, like I used to work in as a kid when I stocked shelves for a grocery store locally, um, where that food might sit up there for three or four months in the baking heat in the attic before they run out of it on the shelves because it's a low turnover item and some young kid goes up there and gets it brings it down and puts it on the shelf which one of those three are going to happen to the food so their expiration date assumes reasonable handling in a worst case scenario for their expiration date. So that means you can push them. Now, I don't want to get sued either, so i got to tell you, the way you store the food has a direct uh, response to how long you can store it for. But I'll absolutely tell you that something like a pinto bean uh, will not go bad if properly stored for long-term storage. It'll outlast you. White rice will tend to outlast people, too, if stored properly. And that is in an oxygen... Uh, no, no, not a low oxygen, but no oxygen environment. If you get any of those foods like that, those dry food in zero oxygen environments, and keep the temperature uh, low, uh, they're going to last a very, very long time. So there you go. That's the best answer I can give without putting myself into a point of legal liability because some clown goes out and makes up a bunch of uh, macaroni, leaves it, you know, cooks it, and then leaves it out overnight and eats it and says, Jack Spear goes to macaroni lasts forever. Uh, that's not what I say. Please don't do that. Don't be a knucklehead. All right? But that's that's where that comes from, and that's why they have those relatively short-term expiration dates on a lot of foods like that. Um, the important thing for you, I guess, to do to get a real baseline is to find out from any manufacturer um, what they, you know, it, you might have to do things like write the company or phone the company up. And basically what you want to know is, if I look at an expiration date of December 2009, when was that item produced? 
Because the biggest thing that expiration dates give us with good long-term storage food is a baseline of when the food was produced. But that varies by manufacturer. So they might say, well, that item has a standard shelf life of six months. So you know if you have a December 09 expiration, then it was made in June of 09. Right, so if that makes sense, that's what you might want to do with specific items that you're considering for long-term storage. Contact the manufacturer uh, through their website, through however you can find them, and find out what's the standard shelf life of the item once it rolls out of their warehouse. All right, let's go on to another question. This is a tough one. Um, I can give you somewhat of an answer to it, but you're going into an area I don't know anything about with part of it. Guy says he and his wife are about to move to Hawaii. Well, good for you, man. That's a nice place to live, honestly. Uh, Especially if you have a job you can afford to live there with and you can find an area where it's not too terribly expensive and that would be anywhere off the coast, I would imagine. I guess there's probably affordable places to live in Hawaii. I don't know. I've never actually been to Hawaii. He says, what are some things I need to consider for island survival? Okay, I can help you there. Uh, And to prepare for the most probable threats, which would be storms, can help you there. And volcanoes can't help you. Other than to tell you, you know, you need to talk to the people that live there and find out if the volcano blows, where's the flow go? What, what have they been through it before? Has it been a problem? My understanding is that most of the uh, volcanoes in the Hawaiian Islands are either extinct or highly active in a way that makes them no threat to the surrounding population. I don't know, though. I'm not a volcano guy. It's, it's probably, of all the disasters that could occur, the one I know the least about. So I'm not sure what to tell you on the volcanoes. On the island part, let's start with the island part. The, the best advice I can give you there is you have a two-edged sword with an island. On one hand, you're isolated from some of the things that would happen in the rest of the United States. Let's face it, Hawaii is far enough away, the fact that it's a state is ridiculous. It was a state because we decided we wanted it to be a state because of strategic importance and honestly because of sugar, and I can't get into that today, but it was sugar more than anything else that ended up with us, with our fingers deep into the Hawaiian Islands. So... It's way out there. It's it, There's a lot of things that go on here that the people of Hawaii really don't care about. That's the good side. The bad side is when something goes wrong, you, you've got a relatively small geography that you're kind of held captive into, and you become dependent on... You know, outside uh, goods being imported to the islands. Now, I think Hawaii could be extremely self-sufficient. I don't think that it is today because it is so heavily populated by tourists and uh, so heavily influenced by the rest of the world and been made out to this huge vacation mecca. And let's face it, for Americans, it's a vacation spot. It has a lot going for it. Beautiful place. You know, no customs to deal with while you're on vacation. Last thing I, I, you know, part of why I don't leave the country that much is... It just annoys me to stand in line for an hour and a half to clear customs in some country uh, while it's supposed to be my vacation that I've waited all this time for. So that's that's one thing that, that it has going for it for tourists. So that's why it's there. But that's created all this constant influx. There's importation into Hawaii every single day. So if that gets cut off, then you have to be highly self-sufficient as an individual. So the things that I would say is do the things that we always say to do. 
store what you eat and eat what you store. Um, you're, if you're going to live there, if you get any kind of a piece of land, what a beautiful place to grow your own little homestead, even a small urban one. You can grow so many things in Hawaii that we could never grow here. So grow a lot of your own food. Learn the places that maybe are open to public foraging. Might be a good idea. There's probably a lot of stuff growing around in, in public lands where you can go take the food, but find out whether you can or you can't before you just go doing it. You might end up on some tribal land or something like that. You need to respect that. Um, but basically what I'm telling you is do the same things we do here. Understand you might have a little bit more of a sense of an urgency on one hand, and on the other hand, you're a little bit more buffered. So I think those two sides equal out. I, I don't really know what else to say about that because I don't see it as being that much different as, pre- as the, than prepping in Florida. On the storms, you do the same things that people do to prep for storms everywhere. Backup power source, very important. Uh, having some wood around that you can board your windows up with if you end up in that situation, at least some duct tape uh, to keep if they break from them being shards of glass flying around and uh, be ready to batten down the hatches. Now, I think the good news is Hawaii doesn't routinely get rocked by really bad hurricanes. Uh, it happens occasionally, but it is not the, t- you know, you're, you're more likely to encounter a hurricane in Miami uh, or Galveston than you are in Hawaii. So, you know, maybe relax on that one a little bit. But the big thing is be as self-sufficient as you can. And in that area, as long as you have yourself a little piece of land that you can claim as your own, you probably have an advantage, not a disadvantage, in self-sufficiency just because of the beautiful weather year-round and very, very fertile soils. Here's another great question. Um, guy says, okay, I'm in Texas like you. It is hot in the summer. I keep a bug-out bag in my trunk. Like I know you do because you've said you do. What kind of food can I put in there to deal with this heat? Um, well, one of the great things you can carry are the Mountain House freeze-dried, like, camping-level packs and a little stove and carry some water. You need that anyway. And uh, that stuff will handle the heat with no problem whatsoever. And every once in a while when you go camping, take your bug-out bag, eat a little bit of it, and replace it. And that'll, that'll help with the rotation there. Um, beef jerky seems to handle the heat okay. Um, I buy those great big giant bags of it. Put one or two bags in my bug out bag, one or two bags in my wife's bug out bag. But about once a month, I make the huge sacrifice and I pull the bag out and I eat it and I replace it um, just because it is so hot. Uh, most canned goods are going to be okay. Any of the stories you've heard about them rupturing or whatever, kind of, you know, bogus. So, like some small cans of tuna and chicken. Again, these are things, though, that you need to rotate. Remember, it's not that the food will go bad overnight, it's that the storage limits go down. So, any of those foods that are like canned goods or whatever, you need to take them out once in a while and eat them. So, I might carry a little can of chicken salad as one of my items. And then, you know, one day for lunch, I'll run by the grocery store, pick up a can or two uh, to replace some stuff, pull some stuff out of there, and uh, I'll eat it for lunch. So, it's more of a rotation than what to store. Another very low-cost thing, though, you can carry in a bug-out bag um, that's almost, not as good, but almost as storable as Mountain House are the little uh, envelopes that are kind of in, the, like, uh, Lipton and uh, some other manufacturers make of rice and noodles, those different varieties like that. Um, a lot of them call for a little bit of butter or oil when you make them, but that's always optional. Water is sufficient. Um, and those, again, just rotate them. So those are some examples of things. What you do not want to carry is anything that will melt or get sticky. So, like, that rules out granola bars in the, in the summertime in Texas. Even the hard ones, they get really gross. Uh, any kind of candy, things like that, um, are just going to melt. So now another thing you can do, though, 
is you can carry kind of a little modular food bag with any kind of items that you would like to keep in your bug out bag um, with your car and on your person and take that into your office every day, take it into your house at night, uh, but it's there if you need it. So just a very small little additional bag that can easily go into your bug out bag if you ever have to go on foot or something like that. That would give you a little bit more flexibility in what you carry because that way it's always in the AC or whatever, or even if you leave it in your car, it's only there while you run in and out of a store or something like that. But I haven't found that necessary. I've pretty much stuck to uh, things that will make it. And I know some people say, you shouldn't carry things like you know soup mixes or mountain house or anything that requires water because you need the water to drink. I'm sorry, that's it, it, you're just not getting it if you're doing that. One, you got to carry a, a significant carry uh, supply of water anyway, right? So you're going to carry the water. Number two, if you take water, all right, and you use it to make something like let's say mountain house uh, Thai noodles, right? Those are pretty good. The water still goes in your body. Very little of it is lost to evaporation cooking it on your little camp stove or whatever. Right? So you've still consumed the water. Now people say, ah, but the food helps to dehydrate you so the water's less effective. Yeah, but if I have a pre-prepared food, the same thing is true. I've still consumed the relative same amount of water. But if the pre-packaged food, it just keeps going. I've seen these debates. But the pre-packaged food doesn't take away from your existing water supply. But it adds more space and it adds more weight. By taking up more space and adding more weight, you limit the amount of water you can carry. It's a self. It's like it's just a loop, like a feedback loop that never ends, right? So I have no problems carrying those things. I do think you should carry a few things that can be eaten without preparation because you may need to eat on the go. You may not have time to cook. But having kind of a 50-50 ratio there, I have no problem with. So that's kind of a little bonus extra piece of info there. Let's go on to the next question. Next question a guy asked, and this is a a creative question. He says, what do I think about buying a piece of land and beginning to improve it? I didn't say whether it would be a house there or not, but let's just assume there could be or there may not be. It doesn't really matter. Um, With a self-directed IRA, it's a funding mechanism. In other words, I take my individual retirement account and I use it to buy real estate with a IRA that allows for the purchase of real estate. Um, and even if I don't have an IRA that allows for the purchase of real estate, I set one up and I take my existing IRA and I roll it in there and then I use it to buy property. What do I think of that? I think under the right circumstances, it's one of the most awesome things in the world that you can do. It's absolutely phenomenally awesome. Here's the limitation. It's generally not possible to mortgage a property inside of an IRA. In other words, if you want to buy a $100,000 piece of property, you need a $100,000 in your IRA in cash, which will then be liquidated into cash and exchanged for the property, and then the property takes the place of the $100,000 worth of cash, if that makes any sense at all. In other words, it has to be a one-for-one exchange. There is some legal issues with whether... Um, it would even be legal to do, and very few lenders would even be willing to consider it. So if you have a big chunk of change in an IRA and you want to invest that into real estate, no problem. If you want to take, like you have, let's say, $70,000 in an IRA, and you're thinking, well, I want to buy this house, and uh, it's going to cost me hundred k and... Um, you know, when I buy it, what I'll do is I'll take 20000 from the IRA, and then I'll make payments on the mortgage from the IRA over time. You know, um, not going to happen. Can't do it. 
uh, generally speaking. Now, there might be some loophole to do it. My understanding is it's difficult, if not impossible. So you got to have the money there and buy the property all outright, which is not necessarily a bad thing. My other understanding is that you cannot live in the property as a primary residence and do this. I could be wrong about that. I'm not sure. If you know better, please tell me. I'm being humble with you now and telling you I am not an IRA expert and I'm not sure about that one. But my understanding was it had to be legitimately considered an investment property. Now let's talk about some of the advantages. You can then lease the property to somebody else. Put every penny of lease income or rental income into the IRA and tax defer it. If you're fortunate and you funded a Roth IRA, to a level where you can do this, then you have you have money coming in there that you will never pay tax on. You'll pay tax on it today, but once it goes in there, you'll never pay a dime of tax on it ever again. So it's a great tax deferral tool. The other thing you could do is if you were like 12 years from retirement, let's say, and you wanted to eventually move to this place, you could use IRA money to buy it. You could use IRA money to fund repairs in it, and eventually when you move, you can sell your primary residence, go there, and at the time of retirement, it's basically a distribution to you. That's how I understand it. Again, I could be wrong. Anybody that's an expert in real estate IRAs, I'd love to have you on the show to talk about that subject and maybe some other things with IRAs. So if if I got that wrong, let me know. I will not be offended. That's just my take on it um, for right now. Next guy asked me an interesting question. He says he lives in New Jersey, and he's got bear problems. Um, that there's a kind of rural area in New Jersey, and they're just like overrun with black bears all of a sudden. They don't hunt them enough, I guess. And my gut is, because I've seen this in Pennsylvania too, that people are feeding them. And I know it's an old cliche, don't feed the bears, but God, people, don't feed the freaking bears. That's it. Bears are one of the most wild, shy creatures out there until they start to interact with humans and associate with food. And as soon as that happens, bears become very, very tame in appearance almost overnight. Um, it's amazing how quickly a bear will adapt to that as soon as that fear leaves him. So don't do it. Number two, though, he said, what are my thoughts on bear spray? Hey, good idea, get some. I, I can't fault it. Get the biggest, meanest, nastiest stuff you can get your hands on, and at least you got something. He also wants to consider getting a gun. He has no experience with guns at all, okay, no training, no background, no knowledge. He's afraid of the anti-gun sentiment in New Jersey if he ever has to use his gun. Some guy was already fined $10,000 for shooting a black bear when it was deemed he didn't need to shoot the black bear, um, which I guess once your arm's in his mouth, maybe then they'll let you shoot him. And, uh, you know, so how do I deal with this? And then compounding it, he has an autistic child who won't easily learn to respect guns, what the hell do I do? Okay, let's let's take this in pieces, in segments, because you've got a very unique situation there, and each piece may apply to somebody somewhere else that doesn't have all of them. Let's start out with the fact that if you shoot the bear, you might get a fine. Okay, if the bear is actually a physical threat to your safety or your family's safety, kill the bear, worry about the legal consequences later, if that really happens. Number two, that generally doesn't happen with black bears unless cubs are involved or unless you're feeding them and attracting them into the area and you're interacting with them. Generally, not definitely, but generally. Okay? So, 
Understand that it may not be as big a risk as you think it is just because you see the bears around. Number three, if you make your area inhospitable to bears, they're less likely to show up. Um, I would tell you, if it wasn't illegal in your state, because they're morons, to go out and get a bunch of flashbangs or M80s or something like that, and whenever you see a bear, toss one in its general direction and make your area kind of, you know, persona non grata for the black bears. I don't think you'd get away with that up there. But, you know, whatever you can do to minimize the appearance that there's food or the actual food uh, being there for them, it'll keep them away more. On the autistic child, how do you keep a gun safe in a house with an autistic child? I tell most people, teach your kids about guns, teach them to respect guns, don't tell them where daddy's gun is, but have them understand that guns are to be left alone. With an autistic child, you don't have that luxury. Let's, just, let's be honest about the limitation there and the danger that it inherently presents. I would say you need to secure your weapon with some type of a lock that prevents it from firing. Um, if you were going to have a handgun, which I don't recommend for you in this situation, I would recommend that you go to uh, Center of Mass and get one of their biometric safes because you can program it for a fingerprint. It's two seconds and it's open and out, and your kid ain't getting in there. You could bolt it to a wall or a closet. That would be one option. The other option is to get a handgun, um, get a carry license. I think you can get a carry license. As bad as New Jersey is, I think you can get a carry license there. Carry your gun on you. If it's on you, your kid can't get their hands on it. Carry it at home, carry it wherever you legally can carry it, and get a good blocking uh, condition placed for it. Number three, I would actually recommend in this situation a shotgun is the best weapon. So I don't know if anybody makes one, but if you could get some kind of a trigger lock or a cable lock for that gun that uses biometrics so you don't have to worry about a combination or a safe, that would be a good product for that. I don't know if one exists. If anybody knows, post in the comments today. Let this guy know. That would be... Now my last piece of advice for you. Go get professional training. You, you, you said yourself you don't know anything about guns. You didn't grow up with them. You didn't have a mentor. Odds are in your area you don't have a mentor around you you can find. Go pay for one, two, maybe three courses and, and start with one on basic firearm safety. I guarantee you it's there. It's going to be part of a concealed carry permit if you do that anyway. But I'll tell you what. This crap about well a guy shot a bear and he got a fine. Don't think that there's not a chance that that guy's not an asshole and he didn't shoot that bear when he didn't need to. Don't think it's just New Jersey. Um, the New Jersey state people, the, the legislation there, the property taxes, everything, those guys are crazy. I understand that. The, but the, guy, the people who would come out and make that decision on a guy shooting a bear, whether it was a good shoot or not, wouldn't be your local police department. It would be the New Jersey Department of Fish and Game. And those guys are, you know, they're pretty reasonable people. Uh, most game wards I've found in a situation like that are going to make a reasonable assessment. This guy may have seen the bear outside and just decided it was too close to his house and shot it. That's not a threat. If it's not trying to get to you or get into your home, I'm sorry. You don't just get to shoot a black bear. They're a protected game animal. Um, there's things you can do to dissuade them from your property. If it becomes a chronic problem, make a phone call or two to local animal control. And at least if you do that and you have reports filed and they don't do anything, if you ever do end up with a shoot, um, you've got a little bit more to stand on. Also, the bear spray works from everything I've read about it, uh, but it's another thing you're going to want to definitely use some kind of safety mechanism to protect from your kid. It's something that can be extremely damaging, even permanently damaging to a human being. Uh, it is not the same as pepper spray that's designed for like law enforcement use against humans. It is bad, bad news, and it can cause asphyxiation in large quantities in human beings, so you have to be careful with that. 
that as well, it can cause a lot of damage. But I would definitely get yourself some in your situation. Uh, again, securing it in some way, shape, or form. Best I can do on that one. Um, the other person writes in and says, Jack, you've mentioned that you occasionally do buy stocks. You cherry pick them. You won't tell us which ones? I understand. Right? Because if I start telling you which ones to buy and you buy it, I get sued again. Right? I will tell you that I bought Ford when it was down in uh, under a buck and a half a share. And it's at eight bucks right now. <laughs> Why? Because they said they wouldn't take the government's money, folks. I'll tell you after the fact why I did it. Um, they, when the day they said we were not take government money, we're going to be okay. I watched the stock, and when I saw a buy number, I bought it. But what he really wants to know is how do I buy? Do I buy with a conventional broker, or do I use like E Trade or Ameritrade or Scottrade? I actually use E Trade, and I use E Trade because uh, I set up an account there a long time ago when I didn't know a lot about stocks, and I just wanted to buy this one stock. And um, if I was going to trade often, I would probably go like Scott Trade or Ameritrade. They're more affordable, more options, better pricing, better across the board than E-Trade. But since I have an account there and I only buy stock once, maybe every two or three months, I see something, I want to buy a few shares of, I've kept my E-Trade account. Um, I don't see a reason for a conventional broker unless you're going to be doing things with large sums of money and making very strategic plays, and then you better find a damn good broker, and you're probably still better off on your own. Uh, because most brokers are idiots, and most brokers are receiving kickbacks and other things to get them to make recommendations. They're receiving, uh, you know, riffs, stipends, whatever you want to call them. Uh, they're being bombarded with marketing material and collateral. I don't know. If you find a good broker, let me know. A good broker that can really make you money, let me know. My dad always used to say a stockbroker license is a license to steal money. Because you make money when it goes up, and you make money when it goes down, and your client can lose his ass. Every trade, you make money. And uh, that's no way to be, in my opinion. So I don't have a really great opinion of financial advisors or brokers, to tell you the truth. Um, in fact, financial advisors every day go a rung lower with me. Every time I talk to one, my opinion of them declines. Uh, I've talked to one or two that seem to be worth the salt in their bodies. Uh, I hate to put it that way. You know, but prove me wrong, folks. Show me a financial advisor that when I say, you know what, let's not talk about the rest of my life. Right now I see a crash coming. Protect my money. doesn't try to talk me out of it when I'm 37 years old or whatever it is. Because everyone I talked to, I ended up having to do things mostly myself last year. Because everyone I talked to said, you're too young to worry about this. Yeah, well, 50% of my income is about to be gone. And none of them could figure that out. So I do things alone. Um, Next one says... uh, I capture water pretty readily from uh, my air conditioner condenser and tubing and stuff like that. So you set something up to do that. We've had people talk about doing that before. I've actually mentioned it. When you run your AC in the summertime, those cold tubings tend to conduct a lot of water from uh, condensation, and you can set up a way to capture that. You also know, is there anything wrong with using that water for irrigation in my garden? Is it, is it good for irrigating crops? Absolutely. Nothing wrong with it. It's plain old everyday water out of the atmosphere. You can drink it if you want to. It ain't going to hurt anything. Um, if you do drink it, it's going to taste very flat. Uh, if you ever had to drink water like that, what you do is get yourself a couple glasses and dump it back and forth three or four times. 
right, to get some oxygen into it, and that'll kind of lift it, and it'll have less of a flat taste to it. Um, but there's nothing wrong with that water at all. comes out of the atmosphere. comes from the same place that our rain comes from, so use it all you want for anything that you need. Uh, assuming that you don't have, like, a bunch of nasty slime or goo or something growing on the pipe, right, if the pipe has something that's contaminated on it outside of it, then that water, of course, can take it with it as it condenses and comes off of there. So assuming clean, uh, whatever you're condensing on is clean, uh, no problem with that water for just about anything. Um, Next one, and the last one, how do you start building a prepper community in an everyday neighborhood? In other words, what this guy's saying is if I reach out to people and start saying, hey, I think we need to be prepared for disaster in this neighborhood, they're all going to look at me like I'm crazy. And they probably will. Most people are either sheep or ostriches. And I know somebody can call them sheep. They're sheep. Right? And they're sheep not because they're not survivalists. They're sheep because they believe whatever they're told. So when the TV says everything is good, they believe that. When the TV says everything is bad, then they're worried. But as soon as they say it's good again, it's okay. And, they, and they're like that with every issue in life that they hear about. Or they have their head buried in the sand. If they inhale deeply, they're going to die from inhaling sand into their lungs because they're an ostrich. So... When you approach people with this stuff in a lot of situations, especially on a level of our neighborhood should be more prepared, it is likely that you'll get pushback. So what you want to do is what I what I call soft reach out. Okay, soft reaching out into your community to start building the community first and building preparedness around that. One of the best ways I know to reach out in your community, it's a big part, not why, but a big part of why I'm such a fan of it is gardening. If you start gardening, and you start giving away your surplus production to your neighbors, two things are going to happen. One, you will form relationships with them. Two, they will start gardening and and giving you back stuff. Uh, Some people will never garden no matter how much stuff you give them. But if you go out every year and you give away uh, extra produce to, let's say, a little bit to 20 different families in your neighborhood, I'll bet you next year four to five of those 20 are gardening. I'll bet you it happens. I've seen it too many times. I'm telling you right now, when you go out and you give somebody a sun-warm tomato or a pepper that came off the plant 15 minutes ago or a nice fresh-baked loaf of zucchini bread, and they eat that and they go, oh, my God, where's this flavor been my entire life? This crap in the store just doesn't add up anymore. I gave my sister-in-law a pepper two weeks ago. She came to the house yesterday. She goes, I still can't believe that pepper. I'm like, go out and pick some more. You know, there's plenty of them out there. Grow some of them. But two weeks later, she was still talking about it because it was so different. Because it had so much more flavor, so much more texture, so much more freshness, right? And it was because I like pulled it off the vine, wiped it with my hand, and made sure there's nothing on it, and so I eat it. She was actually reluctant to eat it because she's like, it doesn't need to be washed. I'm like, 100% organic. It just rained. There's nothing there. Don't worry, just eat it. She hated. She's like, I can't believe it tastes like that. Um, so that's one way. The other thing that I think is a great bridge, and it's more in line with getting people into the preparedness mindset, is getting the information uh, and a packet to get started with a neighborhood watch. And uh, I think it is one of the best ways to get a community to start thinking about preparation. It might require you dusting off your shoes and going door to door and knocking on doors and meeting your neighbors. But 
generally speaking, when you show up and say, I live in this neighborhood just like you, and I'm looking at putting together a neighborhood watch, this is a nice neighborhood, I want to keep it that way, are you interested in supporting it in any way at all? Simply being on the phone list, you know, knowing who to call, what to call, what to do, uh, maybe doing nighttime, you know, drive drive-bys once in a while or something like that and, and start to get a neighborhood watch into place. It will do a few things. One, it will show you the people that are going to be open to this in the first place in a very soft entry because it's not, hey, I think we all need to have food on, on our shelves. Because folks, in a lot of situations, that's, that stuff's just not going to happen. right? You might get 10 families out of a 50-family neighborhood that are actually in sync on some level of real preparedness. But having a good neighborhood watch infrastructure in place will help if a breakdown ever comes and it will help you identify the people that are more active. If someone is a prepper and you put them into a neighborhood watch and you're a prepper, you'll be able to identify each other without even saying it. You'll look at each other and go, oh, okay. I, 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 you know, I kind of get it now that this person's kind of in sync with me. Uh, we are unique people as preppers, as survivalists. We kind of stand out. We don't stand out to the average person because they're not paying attention, but we do stand out to each other. So I think that neighborhood watch is an excellent way to uh, to, to start making that happen. Now, if you're lucky and you kind of live in a rural area, find out if there's any sportsmen's clubs, outdoors clubs, anything like that, that or gardening clubs uh, in in your area. Go to them. Get involved with them. You might see a couple of your neighbors there. As soon as you see that connection, you know you've got somebody you can probably work with to eventually get to some level of agreement of what to do in a disaster. If you put those three together, getting involved with community activities that center around gardening, permaculture, um, gun clubs, gun and rod clubs, sportsmen's clubs, anything like that, gardening in your own yard and sharing with your neighbors and, and helping to organize a neighborhood watch. You do that and your community will start to grow on its own. And this is what you have to understand if you want to help build a community. Your job is you're building a fire. Okay. If you do it right, you're building a fire. You get your little bit of kindling and your little sticks and stuff like that and you kick a spark onto it and then you, you build the you know, kind of a teepee structure or a log structure of some sort around it, and you get the kindling going, you get a little bit bigger logs going, you throw a couple logs on there. Once that happens, you need to be able to step back and let the system work and let the fire run itself. And occasionally you'll throw a log on it, you'll poke it a little bit, Right? You'll do some different things to it to keep it going. You'll add some more fuel to it. Maybe it'll get burning a little bit hot, and maybe you'll back off a little bit. But it basically burns as long as it needs to, as long as it's fed. You don't sit there and constantly relight it. If you build a community the right way, then the community runs itself a lot like our forum does. We have great moderators there. They keep the ball in bounds, but it's a constant input from all the members and all the contributions together to add up and make that community work. It's a system. Sometimes I don't go there for a week. It still runs without me. Your community and your neighborhood needs to be that way. If you're trying to control it, lead it, and push it, it will never happen that way. And it will never become what you want it to become. I think that's why a lot of people, they get together and they form these like agreements. They're going to move out to a property together and jointly buy it. Because one person is so concerned with it being a certain way, it eventually falls apart. The same thing can happen in the community. So reach out. Use soft entry points. Make sure that you're doing everything you can to help get that spark ignited. But when it ignites, back off and let it take its course. Don't try to control it. You don't control the campfire. You just simply add wood and you let it burn as it pleases. 
This is what you need to do with your community building. And if you do that, I think you're going to make a stronger, more stable community that will be able to handle disasters and good times as well and branch out and reach out to each other. Um, and with that, I think I'm going to close. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent. 